Good morning, everybody. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. I'm probably the only one that has listened to Dad's introduction to the book uh, last week because I forgot to post it until this morning. (laughs) Uh, But if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to it because, as usual, he did a great job going over everything. Uh, We'll probably bounce back and forth uh, to... um, different areas of the Bible as we go through our study, but it's worth remembering this passage that he quoted last week in Acts, in Acts 17, as to what were the circumstances that led to the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. And uh, it's in uh, chapter 17 of Acts. Uh, we'll be going back uh, very quickly to First Thessalonians, so uh, you, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. Um, it says in verse 1 of Acts 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. He was their host. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the others before the authorities, and so forth. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money, security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And verse 10, it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and so forth. So Paul and Silas were there for... Um, uh, three to four weeks, uh, and established the gospel there, that it was necessary for Jesus uh, to suffer, uh, and then he rose again uh, from the grave. That was the emphasis there. (coughs) Excuse me. It does work, sorry. Maybe I should mute it next time. Maybe I will. Excuse me. So, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Uh, as Dad said, uh, we've got three characters right at the start. Paul, uh, Silvanus, or a.k.a. Silas, uh, to use um, the other name that we know him in the New Testament, and Timothy. Uh, Many commentators uh, made the point uh, that uh, the Thessalonians uh, were probably co-authored by Paul and Silas. Uh, historically, you know, even the headings of both Bibles says, uh, you know, the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. But many people feel that Silas had a part in actually writing 
the, the book um, to the Thessalonians. So um, Paul is writing this church, and this, as Dad said, was one of the very earliest of Paul's writings, if not the earliest. And one of the kind of the big ideas is, you know, he has gone on these missionary journeys, and he's preaching the gospel in faith, of course, um, and he's probably just in these earliest stages of hearing back that it actually worked, that it actually stuck, that, that changes have happened because of his preaching, that, that things are, the message is spreading and, and the good news is spreading and, and, and good things are happening. So uh, we, we really capture this, this early phase of Paul uh, excited about what God is doing, wanting to encourage them for, for their critical role in, in getting this started. And you, you'll get some of that as we go in the book. And, and also, you'll, you'll notice that some of the concepts of the gospel are, are, spent, uh, are, are rather uh, described in very uh, simple terms. Uh, these big theological dissertations that you see in Romans aren't there because some of that maybe hasn't even really been fully developed yet, or he hasn't really uh, had time to, to work it out. And, you know, God's still teaching Paul, and a lot is happening. But right here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, uh, some people believe that Timothy brought some of the content. He reported what all was happening uh, in this church, uh, and then Paul and Silas together kind of, you know, said, these are the essential encouragements that we want to give you. Um, I'll also point out, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians. So Thessalonica was a, a big city, one of the main roads uh, that went all across uh, Asia Minor to, and Greece, uh, came through uh, Thessalonica, and there were branch points that went to the south and went to the north, and it was a very important city. It was the capital of the area. Uh, it was kind of a big deal back in the day. It was the capital of the province. And some commentators have said that it was this prominence that made it just such a perfect place for the gospel to really launch out. And uh, one commentator said, and not, it wasn't him alone, but made the point that uh, it was the church of the Thessalonians that probably collected all of Paul's writings, pulled them together in a, a codex, in, a, in a, a collected form, and they were responsible for that. And so we think about uh, this earliest church and, and how much faith he had in them uh, to knowing what God was doing with them and knowing that they were positioned in such a vital place, uh, not just to understand what had happened, but to play this big role in spreading it, uh, this church was just so critical back then. Uh, and then finally, I'll make the point, uh, when Paul's writing to the church, he was writing to all the, what we would call little churches in that city. Uh, these churches were meeting in people's homes, right? They didn't have wonderful facilities like we have. They were in people's homes. So when he says, I'm writing to the church, in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, he was writing to the whole thing. It made me think, what if we thought of church like that today? What if people looked and said, hey, what about that church in Lancaster, which might have 
a hundred congregations. And why don't we think of ourselves that way? Why isn't there such a thing as, hey, the whole church of Lancaster is going to meet every year or every five years or something, and all of God's people can get together in one place and celebrate that. I mean, what a testimony that would be. I don't know why that's not a thing, but it was then, and maybe it should be today. So uh, here we are, still in verse 1. Paul, Silas, uh, it's easier to say, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So anytime you see the word Christ, remember that's uh, a reflection on the Jewish concept of the Messiah. Well, these weren't all Jews that he was talking to. Some of them were Jews, but uh, to the Greeks that were there, this concept of the Christ, of the uh, that sort of a Messiah would, was a little bit strange. And in in the Roman purview, uh, Christ, the, the, the name got butchered because there was a common name, Crestus, we would say it, or we would write it C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, was a common name of a slave. It meant useful. So it got in Romans' ears, oh, we've got these Crestus people. Um, They didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, But to the Jewish ear, when you say the Christ, that meant the Messiah. So we got God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And in grace, this was a common uh, greeting. Uh, uh, Charis was a common greeting in uh, the Greco-Roman world, and then peace, or shalom, was the common greeting for the Hebrew world. So we have him encompassing all of the the uh, people that, from whatever background they came from, uh, that's who he's writing. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was a common way of starting a letter where you would say who you are, who are you writing, and then there would be a greeting. And here we have this standard uh, template here. Uh, We give thanks to you um, for all these reasons. Um, I'm remembering you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, this constantly I thought was interesting. They said, this is a word that says it's something done often and repeatedly without interruption, such as the payment of taxes, repeated military attacks, continuous military campaign, a battering ram against a city wall, or a really bad cough. <laughs> I... I understand that professionally and personally, um, what constantly means. Uh, but that's, that's the word there, that he was constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, what was he remembering? Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Uh, they had not only received the gospel, but they were doing it. They were doing uh, the right stuff. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He was calling brothers. Uh, Certainly, um, 
Christians today, uh, sometimes when we are all in our best behavior, we can treat each other like brothers and sisters. Sometimes that is not the case, uh, which is a shame and is not a good testimony. And I think uh, as one of the themes that Pastor Bobby has, has tried to uh, bring forth and as our little uh, uh, back and forth we had uh, a couple Sundays ago, uh, the whole purpose of that was to show that uh, you, can, you can have true heart fellowship with someone even if you might disagree with some of the details. And I think nowadays uh, just the, the, uh, the, the tone is much more um, about talking about topics that might create a lot of animosity instead of the real heart-to-heart things that you get from, from really knowing someone. And, and uh, years ago, uh, I'll digress a moment, uh, in, a, in a former class, uh, we went through some of uh, Ken Sandy's peacemaking uh, material. If you're familiar with uh, what used to be called Peacemaker Ministries, I don't think it's called that anymore, but he gave several rules for, for interacting with people, and, and one of them was give people benefit of the doubt. Assume the best of what someone is saying. And we just don't do that. And I think if we did that more, it would certainly show respect for our brethren here. It says, For we know, br- brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This concept of being chosen, how many times in Pastor Bobby's short tenure with us, has he talked about all the stuff that happens in Genesis? And even recently, you know, God chose Abram. God, for why? Why? No, no reason. There was nothing special about him, but God chose him. And this concept of being chosen, throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites thought of themselves as God's chosen people. Even today, God's chosen people. What an amazing thing that is. But here you have Paul and Silas applying this concept of being chosen to the whole church. So we hear in this very early form, we've talked before about this concept of election, right? That's kind of a big one. Uh, You need all of Paul's writings to really uh, get a good idea of that. But here in the earliest form, we have this concept of what does it mean to be chosen? And just packed into that is all sorts of stuff, right? It's God's sovereignty. It's our undeservedness. It's uh, that we just we don't bring anything to the salvation experience except our faith, that all of the work of transforming us is done by him. All of that is brought into this concept of he has chosen you. You're the chosen ones, right? Although we choose God, um, it's really only by his power that we choose him. And the ultimate choosing, of course, is his. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power, and then the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Um, this concept of um, the gospel, we call it good news, right? Uh, we use it all the time. Uh, did you share the gospel with them? Did they hear the gospel? You know, what is the gospel? We talk about the four gospels. Um, but it's ultimately good news. And all the way, tied in this concept of good news, goes all the way back to these passages in the Old Testament, some of which we've studied not long ago. For example, in Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This glad tidings, good news. Um, it got to be a, a shorthand. This is the gospel. This is the, uh, this is the good news that, that we're sharing. And, and what is that gospel? Remember, it was very simple gospel that he preached. Um, get away from idols, and, and we'll see it in a minute. Turn to the living God. And, and um, uh, remember that Christ came to suffer, and then he rose. Those are just a very simple gospel that was preaching. But it was a word with power, and it came with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there, and they saw all those things that were going and um, and it took root. And uh, one writer said that one of the most powerful ways to encourage someone is to encourage someone to look at things that they saw for themselves. Like, you saw this yourself. So he's kind of reminding, and they could say, yeah, we did see that. Because we forget, right? We forget what God can do. And so he's reminding them, I'm not telling you anything. You saw this yourself. You saw this yourself. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Um, he's reminding them of their, their character and so forth. And, and uh, just a, uh, how many times in Paul's writings did he have to kind of defend himself and his authority? And, and, and so you get a little bit of taste of that Verse 6, and he's still encouraging them, still reminding them. And he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. And I'll go on in a moment. What do you call people who are imitators of the Lord? What do you call them? Christians, right? Disciples, right? Uh, that's what we would call them. These are Christians. Uh, you became imitators of us and to the Lord. Um, that word imitators, it had to do with um, uh, you've become an example. Uh, it was the word that when they would make a clay pot and, and they would create this pot and then this was the pot that other potters would use as their, as their model for all the other pots that they were supposed to make, right? Now, nowadays, we would throw it up on a, you know, CAD program and on our computer, and we would spin it around in 3D and say, yeah, go make some of these. And, uh, you know, some machine would, would make them. But back then, 
someone who knew what they were doing, the, the, the um, uh, what we would call them, the, the design guru or something, would, would make the model, and then all the other people would make theirs to look like that. That's this idea of being imitators. So Paul and Silas had, had come there, had brought the gospel, had taught about the Lord, and he's saying, I told you about the Lord and what he did and how he changed us, and now you've not only imitated us, but you've also imitated the Lord, and you are now yourselves models for everyone else. It says that in verse 7. We'll get there. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Remember all the ruckus that was going on and they had to be run out of town? Much affliction. Now, we know that the early church generally was under some persecution from Rome and all that. That hadn't happened yet. They were very much under the radar still here. Uh, as far as Romans went, this was just some spat with the Jewish church, and they didn't really care what the Jews did because they were such a minority. Um, but there was definitely some resistance that they had there from uh, the Jews and, and probably from other people because one of the big messages was uh, get away from your idols, right? Uh, even back, you know, how many times in the Old Testament we said, get rid of your idols, get rid of your idols, and they kept pulling in their idols. Well, here we are back in the New Testament, a whole different culture, you know, millennia later, and it's still a problem with idols. My hunch is we still have a problem with idols. Uh, people don't change that much, uh, so that's probably still a thing. Um, let's see, you received the word in much affliction. There was distress, there was pushback, but yet they did it. They did it joyfully, it says, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so that you became an example, that's this model, he became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, this really was the crossroads of um, uh, Asia Minor and Greece. Um, and um, of all the of all the places that you mentioned that are mentioned in the Bible, um, only a handful of them are still a big deal nowadays. And and uh, what's it Thessaloniki now? Those of you that have been to Greece, I have not, but uh, it's that's still a still a thing. Um, where are we? Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. They were at such a central crossroads of the world, and what God had been doing in them had been so uh, obvious to everyone else that in Paul's other travels, you know, people were telling him about what they had heard in Thessalonica. Um, he said, I don't, I don't even need to say anything. You guys are doing it. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, other people are now replaying to Paul what they heard had happened to Paul and so forth when he was there. Uh, so he knows that that it, there's been a true revival and the, the gospel has definitely taken hold there. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The dad mentioned, which was new to me, but he mentioned that at the end of, <coughs> is it every chapter in 1 Thessalonians? At the end of the, the last verse of every chapter, we get a little mention of the second coming of Christ. I had not known that before. If you, if you didn't hear this last week, um, here it is. It says, to wait for his son from heaven. Uh, parousia uh, is this Greek word that refers or came to refer to the second coming of Christ. Everybody was looking for it. Um, one of these commentators I was reading that it, was, uh, it wasn't a commentary kind of verse by verse, but it was, um, it was a geographical commentary where he talked about the geography of the land and the politics. Maybe my battery's died, I'll speak up. Uh, the politics of the land and the geography of the land, this particular commentator was talking about. And he was the one that talked about the importance of uh, the geography of Thessalonica and uh, being a crossroads city, so to speak, uh, spreading the gospel. But he also made the point that it was, it was in Thessalonica where this concept of the second coming of Christ really took hold. And those are two main points he had. And I said, well, that's kind of an interesting concept. I wonder, I've never really heard this before. I wonder who this guy is. Is he just some, you know, crackpot from who knows where? So I looked him up, and uh, this was uh, from Dr. Philip Comfort. I don't know if any of you know him. It says he's taught English, Greek, New Testament, and religion at many colleges, including Wheaton College, well-respected place, and Coastal Carolina. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. He's currently retired and lives in Pauly's Island. So, so, so we're practically neighbors, so he must know what he's talking about. Um, so, you know, you never know. Um, so if you're ever in Pauly's Island, drop by uh, and say hi to Dr. Comfort, which is a great name. I wish, I wish my name was Dr. Comfort. That'd be great. <laughs> Especially if I was in pain medicine. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, All right, back to verse 10. Um, uh, I guess we have to go back to verse 9. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. As I read this, I wasn't really sure this concept of the wrath to come I didn't know what that was referring to. If it was referring to just how bad things were going to get, the persecution and so forth. But the commentators I read said that this is probably referring to God's wrath to come, uh, the judgment that God was going to bring, uh, the, the idea that, yes, the good news is that God is going to set things right, right? God is going to usher in uh, this greater world, but there are a few things in the justice department that have to be taken care of, and that is this concept of wrath. And Paul is saying, you know, this son from heaven that we are waiting for, who has been raised from the dead, he will deliver us from that. 
So that is also very good news. Um, they were waiting for Jesus. Uh, these have been um, crazy days lately. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in the world, if you haven't noticed. There are some big things going on in the U.S., if you haven't noticed. Um, and the news cycle is, you know, incessant, uh, wanting our attention. And I'm not sure all the time if there's news that we should be paying attention to or if they just want our attention and so create more news or at least tell things that we're supposed to think of as news. It's, it's hard to, to get there sometimes. But let's look at this. They turned to God from idols to serve the living God. So they were turning to God. How does that relate to us? So I'm wondering, am I turning to God more than I'm turning to my phone or my TV or my neighbor or my talk radio? Am I turning to God more than that? It says they were, had chosen to serve the living and true God. Many of us, well, many of you guys are retired. God bless you. A little jealous, but uh, some of us are still working. Uh, some jobs are tedious. Some do- jobs, it's a daily grind. Uh, life expectancy wasn't great back then. There, w- there weren't 401ks back then. There weren't uh, Social Security checks. Um, w- but what were they doing? They were serving the living and true God. So if we do all of our daily life, all of our daily serving, if all of that was in the context of serving the ultimate purposes of the living and true God, that makes a difference in how I go through my day, right? It should at least make a difference. And they were waiting for Jesus. They were not waiting for some vote in the House of Representatives. They were not waiting for some new presidential election. They were not waiting for peace to settle over all the world. They were waiting for Jesus. Yes, you'll get there. Um, And the big idea is everything else is a distraction. And I'm speaking to myself. Everything else is a distraction. If there are times... I am not putting even my daily thing in, in some context that, yes, this is what I'm doing, but ultimately, there's a greater purpose here. You know, um, I may want to bring comfort to a person, yes, but that's only because someone greater has given comfort to me, right? Uh, I may want to relieve somebody's suffering. But that's only because I have hope of an ultimate relief in suffering because of Jesus. Everything, and this is a challenge I've tried to take lately, is there any reason I can't put everything in terms of the gospel? I am not there at all. But one of the things struck me, and I told you before that I've really been listening intently to some of the sermons of Tim Keller and people uh, often advise wisely that if you're going to follow a pastor, uh, it's great to follow one who's dead. Uh, 
rest in peace, Tim, uh, because they finished the race well and they didn't mess it up along the way. Uh, so, but it struck me, uh, here he is in the middle of New York with his church and everything he says is in terms of the gospel. He can talk about marriage in terms of the gospel. He can talk about philosophy in terms of the gospel. It's amazing. And I'm trying to get there. Back again. We are waiting for a son from heaven. This Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were comforted waiting for Jesus. And we have that comfort now because of what Jesus did then. So what Jesus did already, in essence, has already delivered us from our past. And if we're living in the past, if we're living in regret, if we're living with remembrances of things that are already covered by the blood, that's just Satan. And you don't have to go back there. So we are comforted because we wait for a Jesus who has dealt with our past. We are also comforted because we're in God's family now. And we have a foretaste of the forever blessings that we'll have in eternity. Ephesians says that we, we already get a taste of our inheritance. I heard somebody say, yeah, we're going to be in heaven for billions and billions of years. I hadn't thought about it like that. <laughs> I mean, think about it. That means I could hang out with each one of you until you got tired of me. <laughs> and then move on to the next person until they got tired of me, and I would still have an infinite amount of time to come back and do it again. <laughs> That's just crazy. I can't even think about it. Finally, we are comforted in our future because we're spared from this wrath. And we have some relief from the sufferings that we have today because we can look expectantly with hope that ultimately we will be released forever. To wrap it up, um, Pastor Wearsby, who always does such a great job, he points out that in the first chapter of Thessalonians, we hear about these chosen people, and he has four E's to kind of Hang on, Philippians' first chapter. He said, every Christian should be elect, that is, born again. The secondly, we talked about them being examples. He said, every Christian should be exemplary, that is, imitating, he says, the right people. I would say imitating Jesus, of course. Thirdly, it said everyone should be enthusiastic, that is, they should be sharing the gospel with others, Right? The Thessalonians already had a reputation for doing that. And fourthly, he says they should be expectant. They should daily be looking for Christ to return. Uh, I can't beat that, so I'll just pause there. All right, what else you got? I love it. Elect, exemplary, enthusiastic, expectant, and excited. Well done. I was just 
All right, we got encouraging. That's another E. What other E's? We go on a, we're on a roll here. Do I hear energetic? Do I hear electrifying? All right, we'll save exasperated for Gwen, so. All right. Well, we'll close. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Grace. Correct. Yep. Yep, that's the, that's the Greek there. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you for uh, the work that started back at that crossroads so many years ago. Uh, we thank you for this church in Thessalonica that received the gospel, collected it together, distributed it in word and in deed. We thank you for the Holy Spirit bringing it to us to this day. And may we live our lives expectantly, uh, waiting for your return and in continual service until that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.